Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the way of faith in Christ was available to us. We were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. And all the people said, yes, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, welcome. Uh, we're working our way through the book of Galatians, and I wanted to give a couple of quick announcements here on the front end. Um, this, there's been a lot of uh, reorgs happening within the church over the last year and a half or so, really the last four years, as we've been trying to push more resources and more authority out to the local churches. Uh, we're part of what we call a collective, so that's four families of churches partnering together, and it used to be more kind of one centralized church with the satellite churches, and uh, so this was a big budget year for us. Our fiscal year runs July to June, and we had a, a pretty significant year of growth last year, so we had what we thought was kind of like a faithful risk-taking budget this year, what we proposed. And so we just finished our first quarter, and for the first time in Sojourn history, one of the churches ended the first quarter in budget surplus. So that means we're in the black for the first quarter. That's so funny. I know that last, there's like the three people who know what I'm talking about, or like who care about numbers and budgets that are like get real excited, and everyone else is like, what? Who? So anyway, that was a historic first quarter for us. Um, and some of that is, a, it's a combination of uh, we have a thank you. We have a, a really wonderful staff, in my opinion, and particularly when it comes to budget. So we've either been at budget or under budget in our spending for six straight years now. And um, so some of our being in surplus is because staff has really done a good job controlling budget, but it's also because you guys have been uh, consistently giving and being generous. So thank you for that, and it's an encouraging sign of God's favor with us. Uh, also, two announcements with our elder team. Uh, so 
we're fortunate to be a church that is led by a group of people. So there's, despite where you, I don't know, please don't ever call me the senior pastor, or please don't ever say this is my church or something like that. Uh, there are people here who could fire me. None that I think want to. Oh, one of the guys who could fire me gave me this up in the front row. The house divided, house divided. Um, and so one of the things that we as a church want to embody is whatever you're doing, the health of your soul is more important. Um, there is no, what is the profit of man to have an awesome ministry but forfeit the health of your soul or to suffocate your own self running hard? And that's one of the reasons we think God's designed a plurality of elders so we can share the load. Uh, not everybody has to do everything on the elder team. And so with that, there's also times for rest and for clarifying our, our call. So some of you may have been, we've gotten some questions about where's Gary? Where's Pastor Gary? Is everything all right with Pastor Gary? And yes, everything is all right with Pastor Gary, um, but he's asked to step down from the elder team because he's got some opportunities uh, mission-wise, and he, he doesn't want us to talk about it because he's going to places where it's illegal to be a Christian and it's dangerous. And if you know Gary, that probably doesn't surprise you one bit. Uh, we we want to be a church where whenever somebody gets a, a clear sense of the part they are to play in the body, we want to affirm that and, and not punish somebody for that. So if you want to know more about what Gary's doing, you can go to Colkin, his, his ministry of caffeination, and... <laughs> I'm sure he'd be excited to talk to you about it. Gary is a raging evangelist. He has the gift of evangelism. People get saved wherever he goes. So we're sad to see him step down from the elder team, but we're encouraged to see him use his gifts more. Uh, and then with Pastor Jeremy, Jeremy Quillo, and he's been here since before Sojourn was Sojourn, um, he just got a job in the local school system. So he was working at JCPS for a while, then the Lord saved him, redeemed him, <laughs> put his feet on holy Hoosier soil, and... So he's over here now, and there's some new certifications he's got to take, and so a bunch of transitioning. And also, it, it's just been a pretty heavy couple of years for him and some of what he's been doing in our church. So he asked if he could have six months just to take a step back from his pastoral duties to rest. And we said, absolutely, take care of yourself. Uh, so if you have a, like a, a church crisis concern, please don't talk to Jeremy about it. Let's honor his rest. You have six other pastors that you can talk to. Um, and hopefully more as the Lord provides. And then uh, with Gary, uh, he was a pastor for probably more than a decade at our church and over at Midtown. And so if, if you get a chance to see him, just encourage him and thank him. We wanted to throw a party and he got mad at me for it. And he can still bench press like 117,000 pounds or something. He's this thick and like 4% body fat. So he's strong. Um, and I don't disagree with him. So anyway, those are our announcements. Um, we thank God for those men and we're excited. Nothing bad, nothing scandalous, trying to be healthy. So um, that's that. Uh, this morning, you know, it's interesting how in some ways uh, the last few weeks in Galatians have been the same sermon over and over. Uh, if you've caught on to that, maybe by now, which is basically saying because of Jesus, you're free and you don't have to be the way you were. And we tend to look at that as a, a very or individual thing. And uh, today, I think Paul starts expanding some of the scope where it's not just your freedom that God's interested in as much as it is our freedom. And I think what's being revealed in these verses is maybe there, there's a fullness of the gospel that I think he displays here that will either be unfamiliar or uncomfortable for a lot of us. And that's true for me too. So I'm like super nervous. I wanted to draw up that intro to avoid the Bible for as long as possible. Um, and one of the things that we'll see uh, that has been very difficult for me to see um, until recently is that 
the gospel is about far more than personal salvation and the forgiveness of sins. In tribes like ours, when we think of, and just imagine in your mind when someone says, have you shared the gospel recently? What do you tend to think of? And I think most of us tend to think of the message, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Please let me be absolutely crystal clear. That message is true and good and beautiful, and we are not ever going to move beyond that message or or to lose that message. But to say that that is all that the gospel says I think is a pretty significant distortion and reduction of what God's revealed to us in his, in his perfect, beautiful word. Um, so it's never less than the forgiveness of sins, but if we reduce it to only the forgiveness of your personal sins, we'll miss some of the, the true grandeur and splendor of God's mission and the, the goodness of what he's done for us. And so this can be kind of a big sermon, a big topic, and um, I think to get some context, we should start way, way back before Galatians. So we'll go, uh, we'll go to the very beginning, one of the weirdest verses in the Bible, but also one of my favorites. Uh, so this is in the midst of God creating everything. It says, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Uh, this is where we get the idea, um, which is unique to Judeo-Christianity, the, the doctrine of the image of God right? That we are created in the image of God. If you want to go down a fun theological rabbit hole, you can go read about what everyone thinks the let us is. Who is that precisely? Who is that exactly? All kinds of wild opinions, and it's fun and interesting. I can give you mine if you want in an email. The other pastor said, don't do it on Sunday. So, (laughs) but this is a verse a lot of us are familiar with in the church in the sense of, um, We talk about being an image bearer of God in the sense of identity. So we all have inherent value or we talk around issues of abortion or of right to life stuff or uh, the death penalty. And we we talk about people are made in the image of God and that means they have inherent value, inherent dignity, regardless of their status, their job, the decisions they made, every human being bears the image of God, which means they're valuable, they're worthwhile. And I think we, we're comfortable talking around that, but we're, we're less comfortable talking about what does this mean um, in terms of our function as human beings. So being an image bearer of God is both an identity and a function. It's, it's a legal reality, but also a way of life. And, and this verse here, it, it's the tip of the iceberg of this grand biblical theme of the way the earth functions is intended to mirror the way heaven functions. So the earthly domain of people is intended to mirror the spiritual domain of of God and and all these other beings, the heavenly host and and these kinds of things. So you can think about Jesus praying in the Lord's prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you could think of being an image bearer of God to also mean being an imager of God or someone, the way we live, the way we act was intended to help explain to the world what God is like, and we live in accordance with that design so that life down here functions the way life up there functions. I mean, this is one of the core themes of the Bible. And and if you keep pressing into this and what comes after this, there's some pretty significant things we learn about what it means to be a human. So one of the, the first things it means, I think, in light of Genesis 1 and 2, to be a human being or, or to be made in the image of God is that we are made to be free. Pretty soon in Galatians, we'll see Jesus or Paul saying, it's for freedom's sake, Jesus made you free. It's this really emphatic statement. You you were created to be free. And there's all kinds of misunderstandings about what it means to be free. Uh, 
Part of freedom is understanding the right limitations. What limitations do we have? Biblical freedom is something being free to be what it was designed to be. So a bird is free when it can bird the way birds were meant to bird, right? So unless it's one of those weird seabirds, a bird swimming isn't free like a bird flying is free. Because birds, you get, don't make me go too far because every illustration breaks down. You know what I mean? Like biblical freedom isn't like sloughing off any restrictions whatsoever. It's, it's knowing the field that we're created to play in, knowing our own limitations so we can be what we were made to be. Uh, part of being a free imager of God, part of what it means to mirror God and be free to do that is that we create like God creates. Uh, the words that Genesis 1 will use are words like um, cultivate or dominion. It's, it's this wise exercising of power and authority for the sake of bringing life. So where there were weeds, we'll bring a garden. Uh, to be an image bearer of God means we go out into a world of chaos, which hopefully, I doubt anyone needs some convincing, right? The world is a chaotic, unruly place. Unexpected things happen. Stuff grows. You ever pulled weeds out of your gutter? I didn't know you could get weeds in your gutter, but you, you, it's a chaotic, wild place. And so to be made in the image of God means we go into the chaos and we bring order. It's part of what human beings were made to do. And this, there will be an abundant diversity to what this means. It doesn't mean we'll all do one thing. And you can think about apples for a second. Like God could have just said apple and he made apple. But go to Kroger. Like I find, I eat a lot of apples recently and I'm learning there's all kinds of uh, species of apples? Are they species? Varieties. varieties, thank you. All kinds of varieties. I had like a pink snapdragon apple the other day. I was like, what is it? A pink lady apple. And then there's the gala apple and the golden delicious apple and the Fuji apple and the John of Gold apple and the Honeycrisp apple. Yeah. Amen, right? <laughs> Glory. And which you can buy at Aldi on the cheap. I'm just saying. Uh, we don't live in a Honeycrisp family, but we live in an Aldi Honeycrisp family. You get a six-pound bag for a dollar or something like that. But you see what I mean? Like the, abund the extravagance of what God created. So we're not intended to enter this chaotic world and just do things one certain way. There's a diversity about it, an abundance to what we are to do. And then finally, as we, as we get into chapter 2 of Genesis, you can go back and read all of this. It's in every Bible. Uh, God looks at something that's perfect, right? Creation has nothing wrong with it. Sin isn't on the scene yet. And we have this, again, this divine glorious, let us make God, make human beings in our image to be like us, that plural, that us. And he looks into a perfect creation and sees a human being all alone, not sinful, not broken, but he says, it's not good for you to be alone. So humans are made to be free. Humans are made to create, to cultivate, to have dominion. And we're made for each other. We're made for community. So a human being all alone is something less than a human being. So now sin has come, and hopefully this helps you see that sin is far more than just a moral rule-breaking issue. Uh, sin is the distortion of the freedom, creativity, and community that we were made for. You know, today is a pretty significant day in the history of the world, the 100-year anniversary of armistice, right, on, on World War I. And these, these catastrophic wars, these generation-shaping conflicts, uh, they show us some of what, it, what we think freedom is. Uh, 
Whereas the history of freedom, not so often the history of one group trying to take from another group. Or instead of us trying to exercise wise dominion, we use power to go and dominate. We want something, so we will oppress the other. We will take from them to look out for our own. We've used power like a weapon. Instead of being a family, united, naked, and unashamed, where we don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't steal, but we're vulnerable and open with one another, have we not become people who isolate ourselves, who distort, who hide? When we think of the mission of Jesus, we have to see that God came to restore all of this, not just to say you're forgiven when you should be guilty, but to say, I will make you free. I will empower you to be the wise cultivator, the wise creator that I made you to be, and I will reunite you all as family, where you learn to live in unity, diversity, harmony, abundance. The mission of God was to restore our humanity, and then he enlists us uh, in his work of making all things new again. If you want to know what the Christian life is about, in large part, it's about having a clear enough view of what God made us to be and what he says our destiny is, what we will be. And then we go today and work to make it be. But to put it another way, the Christian life is knowing how the world should be so we can get busy making it be today. This was the plan from the beginning. And this is some helpful context we need to understand what Paul is talking about as he gets into Galatians 3, verse 23, where we started. He says, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. Some of your uh, translations may say we were given, the law was a custodian to us. What's, whether it's under guard or custodian, uh, the, the Greek concept underneath this uh, is something that would have been very familiar in their day. A- every family, well, most families, probably not every family, had a servant called the custodian. And the custodian's job was from when a child was six until 16, this precious age range, the custodian was basically a bodyguard who made sure that the kid got from home to school safe. Wasn't in charge of necessarily teaching him or giving him wisdom for life. Just make sure you get to school safe so that you can be taught, so that you can learn. And Paul is saying here, the law was intended to keep you safe until Christ came and would show you how to really live. All the rules pointed to life as it could be, free, creative, harmonious. They, they were, it was meant to prepare us for Christ so that we could learn how to live the life of faith once he came. Now that he's come, we have this glorious reality given to us. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. Uh, the simplest way I can make sense of this for us is that Now, what's true of Jesus is true of us. If God looks at it and says it's true of Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, that's true of you too. And that's not just a cognitive belief, that's a functional new way of being a human being. So once where you thought you were ashamed and you had to hide everything, no, you hear the voice of God saying to you, like he said to Jesus, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And if God is pleased with me, I don't have to hide anymore. There's a new way of life that comes from this new reality. And Paul gives us a picture here of what that new life looks like for us. He says, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Now, one of the mistakes people make with this passage is they say, see, we shouldn't talk about race or we shouldn't talk about gender or because we, we're all just one. And if, if you take this to mean that all distinctions in the kingdom of God no longer exist or we should just be colorblind or genderblind or whatever, you, boy, you got real problems with whole other sections of the Bible, right? Um, where it says things like, hey, people will be all singing together from different nations, We'll acknowledge the different nations, where they come from, the different languages that they speak. The, the Bible makes it real clear that some men did this, and, and some women did that, and some Samaritans did this, and some Gentiles did that. This isn't saying that the distinctions no longer exist, because they do. And you, frankly, you have to just be relatively ignorant to not look around a room and say like, oh, there are older people and younger people. There are people from this place and people from that place, people who speak this. Like this, this isn't a statement of our reality in the sense of these distinctions are, are gone. What this is saying is that every one of these represent categories of uh, people robbing the humanity from other people, people undermining what it means to be a human, twisting God's design. And Paul is saying all of the distinctions used to rob our humanity are gone in Christ. So think, Jews and Gentiles, these were ethnic divisions used to determine who is in and who is out based on the color of their skin, based on where they were born, their country of origin. By creating ethnic divisions, we robbed each other of our freedom. Because you were born in this place, you cannot do this thing. We will not permit you to enter this place in this room because of the color of your skin or where you are born. Paul's saying, no, 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 we don't. You have Christ like new clothes and he's come and he's set you free to be the human you were made to be. Slave or free, these are again, power dynamics inhibiting our, our ability to be creators and cultivators. People became property, a means to an end. Again, dominion. That's careful, wise empowerment and cultivation was exchanged for dominance. Male and female, this is another power dynamic where a qualitative hierarchy was created. Because of where you stand on the hierarchy, you're more valuable or less valuable. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. All of this is done away in Christ. In Christ, we are a free, creative family. And we have to see that this was God's original design, and now we are the instruments who go and make that so. So in, in light of this, there's two big questions that we need to wrestle with. Uh, the first one is, am I personally culpable for twisting God's design? Pick whichever one of those you want. Freedom that other people were made for, their creativity, or our position, our place as family. Have I done something that has acted against this or gone against this? And for most people in churches like ours, and by like ours, I mean like predominantly white, evangelical, reformed churches, we stop right there. Personal responsibility is the only conversation we know how to have. So we say, have I done anything wrong? And if the answer to that is not that I know of, we tend to just shut the conversation down. The second question we have to ask, so first, am I personally culpable for twisting God's design? But second, where am I corporately responsible? Or, or in other words, as a part of this people, how can I help bring restoration? Because wherever Christians see humans living in sub 
human conditions, we are called to take action. So this means that even if we are not personally culpable, or you can't find something that you've done that caused this, even in that case, all God's children are corporately responsible for bringing God's justice to any and all systems that rob people of their humanity, period. So Christians, as the people of God, we look out across systems, structures, and like if we want to fight against the idea of like systemic racism or systemic sexism or systemic ageism, that's so strange to me because we believe how strongly every individual is twisted, right? Original sin, total depravity. It's like one of our most favorite doctrines. But do we believe that if a whole bunch of people who are totally depraved get together, that that system will be totally wonderful, right? Like that should not surprise us that systems can slant one way or the other. So wherever we see people living in subhuman conditions, the Christian comes to bring God's justice. So let's, let's think about women for a second. Uh, I'm going to start with a statistic so we can be uncomfortable because statistics, right? I don't know. It's a statement of reality. Well, we'll get into it. Um, so women's salaries were 77.5% of their male counterparts for the same job. This is 2015, so it's a little bit out of date. So for a woman doing the same job as a man, she got paid, let's just call it 77% of what the dude got paid. Uh, women executives made 72.35% of their male counterparts. So even at the top levels, they're, they're making less. Now, anyone who throws a statistic at you and gives you a simple answer, I would reject it outright, right? Like, they're, they're complicated realities, and we need to become a people who get better about asking questions like, why? Why, why is this? Is it just because they're women? Is this going on just because that you can't deny that there's a pay gap? There is a pay gap. You can get curious around why is there a pay gap? And if I would suggest to you it's not a very simple answer. It's not a one-word answer. I come to this with my experience as being a part of this church. Uh, in our church, I've heard from time to time um, and not directly, but usually I hear these things bubble up, and it, I hear it in our area. I'll hear things like women shouldn't work at all. A, whim, a woman should stay at home. And so whether we're actively saying that personally, or that's our personal opinion, that is a reality in large pockets of our culture here in southern Indiana, that people think women shouldn't work from home at all. Um, well, just as, as a quick aside, this is going to go long today. Um, we've got Proverbs 31, for instance, which is a chapter on what a model woman is, and she's doing business, right? <laughs> like, she's working. She's working outside the home. She's negotiating deals, and she's praised for it. She's, and again, this is the chapter on what a model woman is, and she's got a job. She's doing a whole lot. You go read that chapter, and you got a real problem if you're going to conclude the Bible prohibits women from having a job. Or you get like a woman like Lydia. She was one of the first early Gentile uh, converts, and she owned a fancy clothing shop, right? She, she was like the first century Gucci or something like that, and she funded a bunch of God's missions. So listen, and this is where we, we need to start working on our language a little bit. If we, if we hear conversations that say women aren't allowed to have jobs, period, we don't just say that's unbiblical. 
right? Unbiblical would be like, that's a violation of, of God's design to some, somehow. We would say that is anti-biblical. Like that is against the message of the Bible. It's, it's not just ungodly, it's anti-godly. So if we see women being treated unfairly, which, you know, if you got paid 72 cents on the dollar, if someone doing the same job as you, you'd say that it's kind of unfair. When we see people being treated unfairly, we have to see that this matters to God and his design for creation. But again, that still doesn't get to the why. Not directly, at least. We have this cultural atmosphere that say things like this to our women. And I've been here for almost six years, or six or, I don't, what year is it? 2018. Yeah, I've been a pastor at Sojourn for like seven years, and I've gotten a paycheck from a church for almost 15. And one of the most common experiences I've heard from women in churches like ours is that they're scared. They're, they're afraid. And listen, like, at the end of the day, I'm one of few people at the church who could go to jail for something that happens at the church. So in a sense, I feel responsible for everything, even though maybe I shouldn't. I don't, I don't know. But I look at that, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing that's making the ladies here scared but I also recognize that the ladies here are scared. I had a, a member call me over the summer, and she's been here for over a decade. And she called me with something really heavy that she wanted to talk about. And she wasn't even, I don't even know that I had necessarily done something wrong, but she said, I've waited, I've been wanting to call you for six months. I've just been too scared to call you. Ask the ladies in our church, how often do you feel afraid here? How often do you feel afraid about using your gifts? Husbands, Sorry, guys, to do this to you. Ask your wife sometime today, um, how often have you felt afraid at our church? How often have I made you feel afraid? It will be, I'm, I'm assuming, shockingly eye-opening to us men. How scared the ladies are. So if half of our church is afraid, we are robbing them of their humanity we're robbing them of their freedom, and we are robbing them from their creativity. And if women are this scared at church, how scared might they be at work? Like where we're supposed to be family, where we're supposed to have the walls down. And if they're that scared at church, might they be scared about asking for a raise? And might that be some of where the pay gap comes from? I think we'd be foolish not to consider things like that. And like, that's just a nickel tour of women in our church. What about other races? If you're not uncomfortable yet, like, we're just going to go for it. I'm going on vacation next week, so <laughs> send your emails to bgillis at sojournchurch.com. Um, so I, I want to help us understand the complexities of this problem and not make it such a simple sound button, soundbite issue for us. So in the United States, okay, we're going to go through some of the most powerful organizations in our country. Uh, it's not right, so I'll read it to you. You catch up and make it right as I go. So first, the 10 richest Americans in the United States, right? The Americans are there in the United States. The 10 richest Americans are 100% white. Uh, the U.S. Congress is 90% white. U.S. governors are 96% white. Top military advisors, 100% white. The president's cabinet, the, the Trump cabinet, is 91% white. The executives who decide what's on TV are 93% white. The people who decide which books get published are 90% white. People who decide news coverage are 85% white. People who decide which music gets produced 
are 95% white. The, doctor, the directors of the top 100 grossing films of all time, 95% white. Teachers are 82% white. Full-time college professors are 84% white. Owners of NFL teams are 97% white. And what do those lists have in common? They are the culture shapers. And now the easy thing is to be like, those wicked, evil, white people, how dare you, right? But I bet most of those people are really good people. And I bet they were honest and hardworking about how they got to their job and their place in life. But, but listen, if you're not friends with someone of a different race, if, if you aren't close with someone who is not white as you are white, where will you learn what people who are not white are like? From your movies, from your music, from your books, from the news. And if like 90 plus percent of that story is being told by people who are not those people, is it possible that that story could be less than accurate? How would you feel? How would you feel if someone who knew very little about you made assumptions about you and they were the ones to tell your story? I'm not saying that these are bad people. I'm saying this reveals a power and control imbalance in our society, where one major group gets to control the narrative of a minority group. Like, don't raise your hand, but I'd be curious how many of us read a book that was written by someone who wasn't white this year. Or think about how many of us read a book by a woman that wasn't about parenting or being a mom. When's the last time you read a theology book by a woman? These are subtle yet pervasive ways we exert dominance rather than dominion. Some of us want to cop out, and so we'll say, but I'm not a racist. I'm not a sexist. It's not my fault. To which I would say, thanks be to God, you're not supposed to be. You're not. Like, that's, that's great. Some will, will try to work comparative oppression. And what's comparative oppression? It's, don't worry about that, Mom. That's the sound of life. You're good. Don't worry about that. Comparative oppression is when we say, you know how much worse it is in Saudi Arabia for a woman? Really? How and it's like, listen, if you care about the, the systems of oppression somewhere else, we would like so lovingly encourage you to go and bring God's justice to that place. But please don't, don't put your attention on the mess across the street to avoid the mess in your own kitchen. God's put us in Indiana, so I'm gonna do something about Indiana unless God calls me to go to wherever those other places are. These are ways that we try to cop out and avoid the issue. Systemic, this is why we started where we did this morning. Systemic dehumanization is the concern of every Christian, regardless if you're contributing to it directly or not. So to say these are issues is not necessarily to say it's your fault, but it might be your fault if you do nothing, or if you sit back and let somebody else be a Christian for you. You can't outsource here. And what I want us to see as a church, because I, I know there's all kinds of issues that this brings up around, and maybe some of you right now are like, gosh, this smells like a Democrat or something like, like these become, <laughs> like why I want to talk this way is to help us see this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is not a social issue. This is a kingdom of God issue. It's a human issue. There's like three of you really happy right now. <laughs> Just so nerve-wracking for me. Um, so like these things that will make us uncomfortable, 
that do poke us in funny places, we must, we must root our causes, our changes theologically, or else they will become the cultural status quo with church clothes on. Here's what I mean. If we're just going to shift every way the culture goes and then try to find a way to put Jesus's name on it, we'll just keep jumping from thing to thing to thing to thing. And so right now, social justice is one of the issues of the day, right? And Christians, like we have to be the people that say, no, 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 this is God's design. This isn't just popular. This is how God has created us to be. And here's where it's rooted. I don't know how to fix all of this. We're a relatively small church, medium-sized church, in a small town, in a medium-sized state, right? Like, we're not like the bastion of influence. Um, but if each one of us said, I'm going to grow in my theological awareness of this issue, I think that would go a long ways in furthering the conversation. Read somebody who doesn't look like you. Learn how people who don't look like you or who haven't lived like you read the Bible, do you know the scriptures enough to see God's desire for a free, creative, diverse humanity? Grow in your theological awareness. Grow in your relational awareness. When's the last time you had a meaningful conversation with someone who didn't look like you? Who may be from a different economic class, a different gender, a different race? When's the last time you had one of those people in your home and you really listened? And you asked them things like, what has your experience in the church been like? How does it feel to be you and how has that shaped the world that you live in? The distortions around us are subtle and complex, so we have to learn to listen to each other. So I want us to be people who grow in our awareness and deepen our relationships across these lines, not just for the sake of being a well-rounded human being or something like that, but so that we can be a church that looks like the kingdom of God, and we can begin to find ways to push back against these systems of dehumanization. And this is all rooted in a commitment to be the family that God has created us to be. We're going to fail. We're going to screw this up. And I think it's only when we're rooted in our place in God's family that we can go, we can begin taking steps at all. And if, like, if this is terrifying for you, maybe go back last week and listen to the sermon on fear and failure. Um, so just real quick, thanks for your patience. This is where Paul ends this section. God sent him to buy our freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Again, the cross is a means to an end. You, you have to see this if you want to make sense of long-term Christianity, not just like summer camp Christianity. Jesus died on the cross so you could be adopted into God's family. The end goal is us experiencing the glories of being God's adopted children. And because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, that's Daddy. Now you're no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir which again, to last week, all of this is in God's will. The destiny of human, humanity is a free, creative, diverse, harmonious family, united in Christ. We are guaranteed success in this endeavor. And now while we wait for that day to be fully realized, today we, the people of God, rest in these realities by going and doing something about it. Wherever we see injustice, wherever we see these oppressive systems, we go and we work against them. So where we see people in slavery to the law, we bring the liberating power of the gospel. Where we see people living as orphans, isolated and alone, we bring the adopting power of the gospel. And where we see others living powerless, fearful lives, we enter in with the confidence of God's heirs. We are unimaginably 
wealthy and safe and secure so we can fail together as we seek to build this beautiful new family in Christ. Our tradition at Sojourn, everything we do flows from who we are. And so week by week, we root ourselves in the great gospel of Jesus, the reminder that we are loved by him and we are safe by him so that we can go take risks like this, engage the world from a place of safety and security, of freedom, not to prove something, um, but rather to be who we really are, to be who God made us to be in Christ. So we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this, remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine, said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Because the body of Christ has been broken for us and the blood of Christ has been shed for us, we have new clothes on us, brand new, clean clothes. Whatever is true of Jesus now is true of you in him. So we come forward and we rip off a piece of bread. We dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it to remember who we are in Christ. Uh, there'll be stations in the back and gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us. And then Christians, let's come and root ourselves in who we are. Let's pray.